electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa, and this is Squawk Pod. Never a dull health moment these days. Just as we're managing COVID, we've got another diagnosis to look out for. Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The real risk as we head into the fall and the winter months is that we have a normalized COVID season, whatever that looks like, um, but also a bad flu season. And some of us are back to work after vacation. Let's just say, theoretically, somebody wasn't paying attention the last couple of weeks. Becky Quick is back, and she's joined by CNBC's Mike Santoli, who's got the scoop on the market's recent rally, recapturing half the losses from 2022 so far. Over the last two weeks, you've at least gotten new information that made you slightly less worried about the stag and inflation. And financial good news roundup. Steve Leisman is on deck, economist, journalist extraordinaire. By now, you would have lost something like 700,000 jobs. Instead, we've added like 3 million. So it just doesn't work as a recession. Some global headlines, too. China's economy hits a speed bump, but oil giant Saudi Aramco is clocking unheard of quarterly profits. Way more than Apple, Exxon, or pretty much anyone else. $48.4 billion. And there's still much more, like ads coming to your iPhone. It's Monday, August 15th, 2022, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Mike Santoli and Steve Leisman. Joe and Andrew are off this morning, but guys, I have to say, I'm really glad you're here because let's just say, theoretically, somebody wasn't paying attention the last couple of weeks. Rip Van Winkle wakes back up. What the heck has happened with the markets? Let's run through real quickly. I want you guys to explain to me the markets and the economy, where things stand. The last four weeks really have been incredibly strong. Higher four weeks in a row. Uh, S&P up 16 to 17% off the bottom. Uh, you know, last week, S&P, all the indexes up more than 3%. And so in your hypothetical, if somebody weren't paying attention for, for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Hypothetically. Who could ask for a friend? Asking for a friend. The, the way I would I boil it down is in the early part of this year, we got into a stagflation panic. So we were worried almost equally about inflation being persistent and high and growth uh, falling short and getting into a recession. Over the last two weeks, you've at least gotten new information that made you slightly less worried about the stag and inflation, both with the jobs <laughs> number, uh, you know, coming strong in stronger, number, sure. even some other economic numbers, you know, just about consumption and things like that here. Uh, you're not, it's not off the table. Obviously, the recession story is still hovering. But the inflation numbers came in, in, in most respects, showing at least it's plausible that we got to peak inflation and it's on the downswing, especially last year with the CPA, last week with the CPA. That would be amazing if that's the right. case, if we really are on the downside swing. Steve, explain the recession kind of fading at so, this point. I think there's still the recession debate fears. going on. People are still clinging to this idea that we have the two quarters of negative growth. Ergo, it was a recession. Along comes a jobs number, 572,000 jobs. And it's like, 
we can't be having a recession if we're doing those kind of jobs. Yeah, uh, jobs are sort of a leading indicator, but there has never been a recession where we've added this number of jobs. If indeed we're two quarters in already, you can't have it both ways. You can't say we're in a recession uh, for two quarters now and jobs are lagging because it doesn't work that way. By now, you would have lost something like 700,000 jobs. Instead, we've added like 3 million. So it just doesn't work as a recession. And then you get the better than expected inflation reports two in a row. So yeah, the st- I like the way you might describe it. The stag and inflation are now a little bit less uh, concerning. But just in case you should feel good for a moment, sort of the Larry Summers uh, hawkish point of view, which is that the Fed has a lot more work to do, that we're not going to get out of this uh, downturn or, 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 or this episode of inflation with only a modest increase in unemployment. But by the way, it went it down. It is a Monday, so we can't let people feel good for too long. Well, yeah, right. It, we, by the way, the unemployment rate went down to three and a half percent. So we're just getting the job market is getting tighter. I'm just thinking right now that for the month of August, every Monday, we should have the Rip Van Winkle report. (laughs) If you have been away for the last couple of weeks. People coming in and coming out. That's what you need to know. Okay, now, if you've been uh, not paying attention to the news overnight, news out of China, the country's central bank unexpectedly cutting two key interest rates after new data showing the economy stumbled in July. It pumped the equivalent of $59.3 billion into the financial system to rev up lending and spark economic growth. The move coming after the government reported retail sales Growing by 2.7% year over year in July, that's well below the 5% that economists were expecting. And a decline from the 3.1% rate from June, industrial production <clears throat> pardon me, also fell short of expectations, declining from the prior month. And investment in real estate falling at a faster pace in July than in June. The data also showed China's youth unemployment rate rising to nearly 20%. Wow the highest level since China began publishing that data in 2018. So this is just counter to what we're seeing everywhere else in the globe where central banks are raising rates because they're worried about inflation. China's a different picture because of the COVID lockdowns. Right, but it's not disconnected. I think that's why the market has its eyes sort of on China this morning to say, well, wait a second. In general, when you have big events like this global inflation we're having or the global downdraft in 2008, central banks sort of coordinated and worked together there isn't a whole lot of coordination going on, and that's why you see the volatility in currencies that you've seen, right? Um, you know, if, if Europe and the U.S. had gotten together and said, here's what we're going to do together on interest rates, you may not have had this kind of strengthening of the dollar that we've had. So you look at China, second largest economy in the world, and you say, okay, they're fighting disinflation. We and the rest of the world are fighting inflation. How does that all factor in? And I think it's not necessarily a good sign for the U.S. Now, is it, China- because of, is it because of political tensions and the idea that we're not going to coordinate and maybe we can do something that even if it doesn't help you all, it helps us relative to the rest of you? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. But, but what I was going to say is China is a weird case. One hand, you look to China for demand and growth and stuff, but China is the world's factory. So the idea that they need to get back to work for us to solve our supply problems so in one sense, whatever they do to get back to work is ultimately good for us. So I, I think take. the market's down a little bit. If you look at the early morning trade, it was down like five points. If they're going to put their folks back to work and start churning out the stuff, get them on the boats, get them to the ports, then that's going to ultimately be good for the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Would, it would be helpful. There was a time when Chinese uh, central bank cutting rates was, would create this immediate reflex in the rest of the market, saying, oh, the China credit impulse, it's going to be a strong swing factor in the markets and liquidity in the world. And that's gone, right? Because they're, they're kind of a little bit off on their own in terms of what, 
what's driving their economy, and it's not really what we're fixated. We really are now in such a inflation-fighting mode, I think, psychologically and in reality, that that's what that's what matters most of all for our. I, the supply chain issue is very, very for different sure. too, and that, that that's a big deal. Too. Let me throw one other thing in here, which is that the, the data was bad. China cut by the PBOC cut by 0.1. Right. There's a sense here that the central bank is responding with. I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, a, a tepid a, response. A tepid response best. to yeah. the political leadership right. to say, you know what, Here, okay. we're reacting, we're to it. but right. not doing a whole lot. Right. Because I think the PBOC, by the way, is well regarded in all of the central banks around the world for their technical expertise. Point one might be, hey, we're just doing the bare minimum we have to to please our political leadership here. That's but we know there's a bigger, broader inflation point. Meanwhile, Elon Musk making headlines, tweeting yesterday, Congrats, Giga Shanghai, on making millionth car. Total Tesla's made now over three million. Tesla's Shanghai factory had been struggling after months of lockdowns and part shortages in China. Um, you know, it's we probably knew they were going to get to the millionth, and they got there uh, presumably by this. And uh, and so he's, I guess, probably wanting to focus his, some attention that it's ramping back up to it. Just a, a very. Um just a reminder of how reliant Tesla is on China, too. Oh, for sure. For everything yeah. that they have going on. The new Bloomberg report says Apple could expand advertising to new areas of your iPhone and iPad. Currently, the company places display ads in its news and stocks apps, but the piece speculates that search ads could appear in the future in Apple's Maps apps. Maps apps, maps apps, as well as Apple's digital storefronts like books and podcasts. The author says Apple's already explored internally the addition of ads to Apple Maps. What do you guys think? I don't know if I'd notice it. I see so many ads and the other things that I'm on, the other apps I'm on. Like... What, what, I, what I think is um, Google has done the best job, I think, of... Keeping clean? No, no. Capturing you in the environment and owning the ads that you see... Yeah. Apple, for the ownership that it has of your space, doesn't really seem to capitalize or monetize it. Well, that it gets way. tricky they because they don't invade they're... your privacy quite as much. Exactly, exactly. That's because that's, that's, that's their too. brand in part right. too. Is that we're not going to track you. We're going to do what we're allowed to do. Also, keep in mind that Google and Apple are frenemies in a way, right? Google pays an enormous amount of money every year to Apple for the privilege of providing the search back end to their apps. So, you know, I, I, presumably there's some, you know. Uh, border crossing you can do if you're Apple and do some of that on your own. But I think Google's conditioned us to expect that. And Amazon, yeah, for that matter. They have. Um, you're right. The ads, if they are targeted to you, are less annoying. But at the same time, it does make you wonder, like, wait a second, you were listening when I was having that conversation? You know, yeah, talking about it means where like, we're going on vacation. If you plug an address into Maps, though, you don't mind necessarily seeing, like, things Perhaps. you might be. I mean, I see it anyway when I use Waze. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, we've finally acclimated to COVID-19, but polio could be attempting a comeback? Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the at-risk communities. If you look at the percentage of people who've completed the entire course of vaccines, the pediatric vaccines, the rate hovers around 76, 77% nationally, but in some states it's as low as the high 50s. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM. 
a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod today with Becky Quick, Steve Leisman, and Mike Santoli. Here's Becky. The CDC easing COVID guidelines last week and a move acknowledging that COVID is here to stay. In fact, those were the words they used. It's here to stay. Among the changes, the agency no longer recommending that people keep six feet of distance or that they quarantine after being exposed to the virus, regardless of their vaccination status. Joining us right now is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor who also serves on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. And Scott, I I thought that was the key point. They they said it's here to stay. This is basically recognition of that and loosening of the guidelines. Basically, we we, got to get used to this. This is going to be more normalized. Is that how we should read it? That's right. And also a recognition that there's more population-wide immunity. Most people have either had the virus or been vaccinated against it. Many people have had both. And so you have a population that's less immune naive and not going to be as vulnerable even to these new variants. And so there's more of an emphasis in these new guidelines on treatments and trying to target interventions to high risk populations and less emphasis on population wide measures to try to control transmission, as you noted. I think some of the most noteworthy things in this guidance are the changes in the school guidance where they're no longer recommending tests to stay. The no longer recommending cohorting of students. Those were very hard measures for some schools to implement, particularly schools that weren't well resourced. And it's going to make it much easier for schools to bring children back into the classroom this fall and keep kids in the classroom, even if we do inevitably see a surge of infection uh, into the fall and the winter, which we're likely to see. I think the real risk as we head into the fall and the winter months is that we have a normalized COVID season, whatever that looks like. Um, but also a bad flu season. If you look at what's happening in the, south, in the southern hemisphere right now, they are experiencing a worse than normal flu season. And so the twin risk of bad COVID or, or moderate COVID and bad flu, I think, put a lot of pressure on healthcare systems. Scott, it sounds like you think these are the right moves to relax things, uh, but, but it does create a little bit of confusion in the workplace and schools, as you mentioned, and just people not entirely sure what the rules are at this point, what they should be doing. Yeah, look, um, it, this gives more flexibility to schools and businesses to make up their own rules. There's not going to be some hard guidance that they need to adhere to. I mean, it's still a general recommendation that if you have an exposure Um, You should wear a mask. You should test. FDA put out a recommendation that you should test for every 48 hours for about six days post-exposure. So you're going to see some of that still be in the guidance that schools and maybe businesses issue. But I think that it's going to be more up to local districts, um, local businesses to make decisions. The emphasis, I think, is going to shift to trying to turn over infections, trying to remind people to be vigilant. If you don't feel well, stay home. Get yourself tested. If you do have the infection, notify the workplace, notify the school so people who might have been close contacts can also remain on guard and test themselves. I think that's where you're going to see a lot of the emphasis shifted. Really good citizenship, um, being a good citizen uh, this winter and not coming to work sick. Dr. Gottlieb, every month we turn to the employment numbers and try to figure out where are the workers. I'm just wondering, do you have any data you can share with us about the extent to which COVID continues to keep at least some cohort of people out of the workforce? 
I haven't seen any systematic data on how many people are staying home because they're concerned about COVID. I mean, what you would be looking for are people who are worried about catching COVID in the workplace who can't work from home, have to be in an environment where they're going to be exposed and can't be in that kind of an environment because they might have some underlying health issues. They might have people at home who are vulnerable. There certainly is a cohort of people for whom that's true. People who either because of their own health status or because of the people within their household really need to avoid this infection and are worried about going back into congregate settings. Not just worried, Dr. Gottlieb, but also have it, right? Isn't it sort of like we're running a constant flu? We always have a certain spike of sickness and illness and people dropping out of the workforce in January, February, March because of the flu. And now I look at the New York Times numbers every day. There's 100,000 cases of COVID every day. That has to be having some kind of meaningful impact on the people who are showing up to work. Yeah, look, we're probably turning over one in 10 infections on a daily basis. That 100,000 infections is probably more like a million infections. I think to try to get a sense of what the rolling number of people who are out of the workplace is, is to look at the number of infections that are actually getting turned over. So that that 100,000 you're talking about, probably there's another... Uh, 100, 200,000 people who are testing at home, getting positive diagnoses on self-antigen tests. And in some percentage of those infections that are getting turned over, let's say 200,000 to 300,000 infections are getting turned over every day between the official tests that are being reported and the ones that are being done at home and not getting reported. What percentage of those people do you think are staying home or people who would have gone into the office, would have gone into a job where they interacted with customers now are staying home because they know they have a positive diagnosis? It's probably not trivial. Um, you know, some of them are home workers anyway, but a lot of them are not. And so you can make a guesstimate off that figure. Wow. Hey, Scott, can we talk a little bit about polio? A few weeks after the first case in the nation was found in the New York City suburbs, it's now been identified in the wastewater in New York City. And it's kind of stunning to think polio, which is something we thought we had defeated, something that we thought was going to be gone, could be showing up again in some of these areas. And I think it leads to something you had warned about years ago. during during COVID with concern about vaccinations and, and how that could potentially bleed over into other areas. Diseases we thought we had conquered may show up again if people are reluctant to take vaccines. Yeah, look, that's exactly what's happening. Vaccination rates are falling. Um, they're low in New York City and New York State, lower than they should be. If you look at the percentage of people who've completed the entire course of vaccines, the pediatric vaccines, including all three, three or more doses of polio vaccine, The rate hovers around 76, 77 percent nationally, but in some states it's as low as the high 50s. Um, So there's a lot of children who haven't had the full course of polio vaccine and the full course of their pediatric vaccines. So we're going to start to see these infections get reintroduced. Um, New York State has a couple of counties, Orange County, Rockland County in particular, that have very low polio vaccination rates. People in those communities have made decisions not to vaccinate their kids. And that seems to be where this was first introduced, or at least where the first case was identified. Um, As you know, one in maybe 400 people will actually get the paralytic disease. Now we've identified at least one case of the paralytic disease. So it doesn't rule out the possibility that there could be hundreds of cases of polio spreading quietly um, in the community within New York State. And we just haven't identified it yet because no one's presented or not enough people are presented with really severe symptoms. That's the concern right now. Now that you have seen one case of paralytic disease and you have identified it in the wastewater. So what do we do? How do we fix it? We need to get children vaccinated. These are safe vaccines. Um, The polio vaccine that's used in the United States, the uh, injectable vaccine has been used for decades We need to double down on trying to get children vaccinated and make sure they're completing these series. I think you're right. 
Um, and, you, you know, we had talked about this many times that the aversion to COVID vaccine wasn't going to be just confined to COVID vaccine. You know, when a lot of people were um, being critical of ch- people going out and getting vaccinated for COVID, that messaging was going to be hard to narrow just to the COVID setting. It was going to bleed over into people's perceptions of other vaccines as well. And I think we're seeing that happening in terms of just a declining willingness to get vaccinated generally. So when politicians go out and tell people you shouldn't be getting the COVID vaccine, the message that some people hear is you shouldn't be getting any vaccine. So we need to be very careful how we talk about these things in the public setting. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. Uh, Really good to see you again. Coming up, the rest of today's stories that got us squawking, like oil profits in the Middle East, big ones, and the alarming backlash against the FBI's Mar-a-Lago search. Our DC reporter, Eamon Javers. The Department of Justice wouldn't really explain much more about anything like this until they make a decision to charge or not charge. There's two scenarios here. Uh, We'll have to wait and see. It could be weeks before we know the final answer. Squawk Pod is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box. This is CNBC, and we are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Steve Leisman and Mike Santoli. Joe and Andrew are both off today. And the FBI and Department of Homeland Security warning of threats to law enforcement after a search of former President Trump's Florida home last week. Eamon Javers joins us now with more. Hi, Eamon. Good morning, Mike. Well, it's that ferocious reaction we've seen on the political right to the search by the FBI of the former president's home that sparked this uptick in threats. Here's what we know as of right now. Over the weekend, we saw this new notice being posted by federal law enforcement. FBI and DHS issued an intelligence bulletin warning of this spike in threats against federal law enforcement officials. The Secret Service itself responding by hardening field offices and encouraging vigilance on the part of Secret Service agents, particularly in high-profile locations such as the White House. Uh, We also saw this reaction over the weekend. Cincinnati FBI attacker Ricky Schiffer, he appears to have recently posted online about his desire to kill FBI agents. So this all appears to be part and parcel of the same dynamic that's happening out there in the country. Over the weekend, of course, we saw the political fallout continue as well. Senator Amy Klobuchar on Meet the Press over the weekend, a Democrat, saying that it's tough to react to this because you just don't know what's in the documents that the FBI found in former President Trump's home. But she said certain things are clear. Here's what she said. But what we do know is it rose to the level of a search warrant uh, that a federal judge approved. And we do know that they were searching for uh, classified material, things that fell under one of the statues they used in that search warrant was the Espionage Act. Now, Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota also on Meet the Press over the weekend, a Republican reacting to this. He said his instinct here is not necessarily to reflexively criticize the FBI, but he does have some questions. Take a listen. I think it's very important long term for the Justice Department, now that they've done this, that they show that this was not just a fishing expedition, that they had 
that they had due cause to go in and to do this, that they did exhaust all other means. And if they can't do that, then we've got a serious problem on our hands. So guys, what we know at this point is that the, the, the Department of Justice and the FBI are investigating here. They're investigating former Trump using Espionage Act statutes uh, to, to justify what they're going after here. But what we don't know is what's in these documents, right? So that's going to be the central question in all of this. And it might be some time before we get the answers because ultimately in normal course of, of action, the Department of Justice wouldn't really explain much more about anything like this until they make a decision to charge or not charge. If they charge, if they indict the former president, then you get an indictment which spells out all the details of what they know. If not, you get nothing because there's a presumption of innocence. The Department of Justice has decided not to move forward with an indictment and they move on. So there's two scenarios here. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. It could be weeks before we know the final answer, guys. Back over you. So uh, we have that vacuum and uh, there's a lot of talk that fills it, uh, I guess, on both sides. Eamon, thank you very much. Saudi Aramco said its net income in the most recent quarter reached $48.4 billion. Let's slow down on that for a minute. $48.4 billion. That's up from $25.5 billion that it had in the same quarter a year ago. But if you compare that to our big giants here, ExxonMobil, I think, was $17.8 billion in net income for the quarter. Apple was around $19 billion in net income. So you are talking about 44. Even when Saudi Aramco was down at $25 billion, it was still outpacing our biggest growers. This is also the highest quarterly profit Aramco um, has posted since its shares started trading on the Saudi Stock Exchange back in 2019. The company's CEO said that the company is ready to raise production if needed. Let's take a look at crude oil prices this morning, too. One more thing to check on. Uh, right now, it looks like WTI is down by about $4. That's a decline of 4.4% to 88.03. You have to imagine some of the China um, retail sales numbers had an impact here, too, just on weakness there. These numbers must be reacting to that as well. Brent's down by 4.5% to 93.75, and natural gas off by about 2%. Yeah, some talk that maybe we get a little more supply if there's an Iran deal. I think there's skepticism, but, you know, oil has uh, been unable to really break back toward the, toward the highs. In a downtrend, 90s look like it's... Uh, that's a big stuck. number, $4. Yeah, it is. Below 90 definitively. That's good numbers for my... Uh, CPI stuff coming up. I yes, because there was a concern. Right. Oh, we it get into back August. That's going to bounce. It was ninety two, ninety three, yeah. and now it's back up uh, four dollars. And, and by the way, the inflation numbers—the reason that they look so good relative to what we've seen in the past—it's almost all the decline in energy prices that we saw in the month of July too. It's Pretty the much factor, though. Yeah. But, yeah. but we had airfares come down. We had used car prices come down. What was it? Rent and food were both up, though. Rent was up. Food was up, and and that's the problem going forward is that we're going to have problems with this, these rent. Are still going to keep filtering through. I just call Diana Olick every week, and I say, when am I going to get better housing <laughs> yeah. price data? And she says, she says, Steve, sales, uh, uh, prices lag sales, and it's like six months down the road. Yeah, it's sort of baked in for a little bit. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for tuning in as always. If you want to catch our TV broadcast, Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin every weekday morning on CNBC starting at 6 a.m. Eastern. Of course, to get the smartest takes and analysis from that TV show right into your ears, follow us here on Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.